Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. I am Chris Rawl. Happy post-4th of July. I hope you all had great barbecues and wore American flag t-shirts and tank tops and felt good about your decisions in life. Excited for today's show. Um, I have many things to discuss, two of them right at the top of the list. Before I get into that, I want to remind you, go and sign up for my newsletter. It's free. If you go to chrisrawl.com, you hit the subscribe button, you put your email address in, bam, voila, every Wednesday you're going to get that. Okay, easy as pie. Go and do that. Today, we are going to talk about the two biggest news items in sports from the last half week. Uh, Rudy Gobert traded from Utah to Minnesota and the seismic shockwave inducing move of USC and UCLA to the Big Ten. Now, close your eyes and sleep. Sleep. I graduated from Utah Valley University over a decade now. Uh, I was not the greatest collegiate student. About halfway through that, I was just not that interested in going to school. And I figured I might as well finish this out. So I was just crawling across the finish line. I mean, like a man with no water in the Sahara Desert and he sees the mirage and then it's just more dirt. I mean, that was me just crawling, inching towards the finish line. And so I remember vividly the last final that I took, finish it up get my car and I'm getting on the freeway exit to go home at university in Orem. And I was like overcome with this just incredible feeling of, oh, my life that I knew before is going to be very different from my life moving forward in ways that hopefully are good. And a lot of them were, you know, I didn't have any more homework. I never done homework since then. The best feeling on planet earth. I've Never again sweated out any more finals, you know? I've never spent my holiday breaks writing long papers, doing all the stuff that you do when you're in school that you kind of take just as a part of your life because you've done it for so long. Grade school, then into junior high and high school, and then college and beyond, depending on what you go through. I went through four years of college. It felt like an eternity. And so going away, I was just, I was ecstatic. And I was also very cognizant in the moment of, okay, this feels like a clear point of, separation in my life, a before and an after. And you have those points. Sometimes you recognize them. Sometimes you don't over the course of time. And you just go, oh, things are going to be very different in maybe one facet of my life or maybe all facets of my life, depending upon what the, the point of delineation is. That was one for me, you know, and I look at a lot of things that happen in those terms, especially in the world of sports, because now more than ever, we're just moving at warp speed in everything that occurs. And so something will happen and I'll go, okay, let's think about this as a moment and a thing to discuss and try to determine what's going to be happening moving forward. And let's also realize that six months ago or a year ago or five years ago, <laughs> it's almost a foreign time and place relative to where we are. And the two biggest sports stories of the last half week, Rudy Gobert getting traded from Utah to Minnesota. Biggest thing going on in the NBA right now and USC and UCLA saying we're out on the Pac-12 piece uh, in 2024. We are joining the Big Ten. Those two things come from that place. Just, uh, OK, things are going to be very different for all parties involved moving forward. Some ways we can understand a lot of ways we really can't with both of these. But we know it's going to be that's what we used to be and that's what we are moving forward. And those two things are in no way similar. So I've been reading a ton of stuff about both of these things, more so on the college football front, because I mean, I, I just like football more than basketball. And 
I think realignment always poses this wormhole that I travel down. It's probably the closest I come to the conspiracy theory crowd where I just start reading and reading and reading. And then three days later, I'm sitting there thinking about, you know what, did we actually land a man on the moon? It's one of those things because conference realignment and the ripple effects that occur because of it, they just never stop. And you don't know them until they occur. And then you go, well, what are the new ripple effects that occur from this move? You know, Oklahoma, Texas happens last year. And I record a bunch of shows about it because I was just parsing through my thoughts on the sport of college football. Okay. What does this mean for actual football itself? What does this mean for conference structures? What does this mean for who is getting left behind? Who is not? Who are those teams? And then, you know, almost a year later to the exact time, USC, UCLA comes out of nowhere. I'm getting ready to go to the golf course. And suddenly that's coming on the ESPN. I'm like, wait, what? And then I'm trying to parse through that in my mind, which is going to be happening on today's show. So I'm reading a bunch of stuff. One of those things was from Ryan McGee of ESPN. And he's talking about USC and UCLA. And he had a line that really stuck out to me, not just for this specific instance, but for this moment in time and sports. And he said, As former Caltech visiting professor Albert Einstein would remind us, time is a relative concept. And in this era of college sports, 11 years might as well be a century, end quote. So he was referring to just kind of how realignment really takes shape every decade or so and a bunch of things happen. And as I was reading it, I I go, you can strangely enough shrink that time frame down and you can include all sports within it. You know, I've recorded a million different shows on the Colorado Avalanche, my favorite hockey team over the last six months because they've been awesome. And then they ended up winning the Stanley Cup. And I've also talked many, many times about five years ago, this was the worst team in hockey. Five years ago, this was the worst non-expansion team of my lifetime. Five years ago, this team was 21 points worse than the next closest team. And now they're having a Stanley Cup parade. Everybody's drunk as hell. I'm happy as can be. And I go, (laughs) That's life comes at you fast. You know, five years ago, you're down in the dumps and you're getting the number four pick. Then it turns into Kel McCarr. And five years later, you're going, we got Nathan McKinnon and Miko Rantanen and Gabe Landeskog and Devon Taze and McCarr and go down the list of this incredible solid core. And we want a Stanley Cup. And now we're set up to win more Stanley Cups, potentially, and at the very least contend for them for years to come. This is incredible. Just comes at you fast. You know, five years ago, I never thought that this was going to be a point that I would look back on and go, hmm. That was the last time for a while that the abs are going to be bad. Didn't know it in the moment. I just thought, oh, we're probably going to be bad for a while. <laughs> and then now here we are. You go across sports and I'd say, look at the Brooklyn Nets. I probably should record a full show on it because it's just, it's kind of incredible and incomprehensible to think about where we all were, including myself, just when this team got together a handful, uh, just a couple of years ago. And Kevin Durant says, peace out, Golden State. I'm going to go build my own team and win my own championship because people don't respect the two championships I've won here. And I'm going to grab my good buddy, Kyrie. And yeah, he's a little weird. And yes, he will definitely talk about whether or not a man has been on the moon, but he's good at basketball. You know what? We can pull some strings, get our third little buddy over here, James Harden. Okay, great. We have three of the best players in the NBA. How are people going to stand in our way? And at that point in time, I go, holy mackerel, this is just uh, an incredible haul. And they are set up to contend for titles. And if they don't win a title within the next, let's say, half decade, but even sooner than that, I would have thought, it's going to be a disappointment because this team is set up. And we are here three years later. They won one playoff series. And it's just 
it seems like it's ending in abject disaster. Kevin Durant's demanding a trade. Kyrie's doing what Kyrie does. James Harden's long gone. Ben Simmons doesn't play basketball anymore. Wears Gucci lamb suits on the bench. That's his sole contribution to the NBA in the last over a year. Life comes at you fast. There's Somehow there's this before and after that existed with his team that I never would have guessed three years ago. Keep going across sports. I mean, Cincinnati Bengals two years ago, you know, team with no offensive line that gets Joe Burrow's, their prized rookie quarterback, gets his leg mangled the last half of that season. And I'm sitting there going, you have to build out around this guy. He's good. We can already tell he was good in his rookie season. A lot of room to grow. But you're far, far, far away from being a respectable football team, much less what they were this year. (laughs) Super Bowl runner-up holding a lead in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl against the Rams. You just never really know how fast this stuff can move until it's occurred. Then you go, oh, yeah. I guess there were signs that the Bengals were pretty good at football, but they didn't expect this. So now we segue into the two big news items, the two that I really want to talk about because I live in Utah. The Rudy Gobert news has been the biggest news in the NBA since it occurred. It's also the biggest sports story in this state that I live in. And every single person I've come across is asking me about it. What, I mean, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And you all know that have listened to the show that I've defended Gobert in a lot of different ways because his flaws are clearly defined. We know them. His strengths are also clearly defined. And I think he's gotten an unfair rap of being, you can just play him right off the floor in a playoff series because too big and immobile. And I've always skewed to, okay, yes, that's a little bit true just because of the present state of the NBA, but that's more of a commentary on Utah's roster around him and a complete lack of individual effort and skill when it comes to staying in front of your man on the perimeter on defense. So I've always kind of pined for him and just go, no, you know what you're getting in him, you know? And as Utah, speaking of life coming at you fast, Utah, two seasons ago, the best regular season record in basketball, hopes and dreams of a championship. Two years later, go into the offseason after just a complete flame out against Dallas. Three of those games, which were played without Luka Doncic, which they go two and one in, Dallas does. And Utah's going, "Eh, it might be blowed up time. Who do we trade? So there's a lot of talk about that. And I'm going, I would probably, I would trade Mitchell because I'm down on Mitchell right now, but I also think his value around the league is going to be significantly higher than Gobert's. I just think a lot of people have soured on the big defensive spine center who is not as mobile. And little did I know, at least one team does not think that. Because as soon as the trade came across, I, my jaw hit the floor and I said, "Where? what, what? This must be a typo. No, wait, what? Where is this trade coming from? Because the Timberwolves, they, they're, this is their point of before and after because they trade out four first rounders, three of them unprotected, one of them top five protected. They trade out an unprotected pick swap. They trade five players, including their first rounder this year, Walker Kessler. I mean, it's just, it's a King's ransom. Might even not do the term King's ransom justice. It's mind boggling that this was a trade for a player that I like Gobert, but you're never saying as soon as you get him on your team, you're guaranteed championship contention. That's just not true. So if you're Utah, you have to do that deal. doesn't matter how much everybody likes him or dislikes him or wants him on the team or doesn't. As soon as that offer's on the table, Danny Ainge is a smart guy. Everybody else, you know, we all have brains. You go, well, yeah, you have to do that. Which then kicks off the next chain of events for Utah where you go, okay, is this, this the start of the rebuild? Is it, you know, they're trading Royce O'Neal out for a first rounder at the Nets? I don't know what the hell that was all about, but 
just, is this just signifying a full-scale rebuild? Is this Oklahoma City round two? Just get pick after pick after pick for the next decade and go from there. Is this a retool for these assets that are going to be utilized to shape a team around Donovan Mitchell? I don't love that if that's what's occurring, but maybe that is, you know? It's still a life comes at you fast reminder when you think about the last two years within this franchise where they were going into that Clippers series in round two and now where they are today, where it's it's either a rebuild or a retool. And if it's a retool, well, we need about eight different people who can play difference because current, <laughs> currently we have zero. <laughs> on the other side, Minnesota, it's just they're planting their flag on this is who we are moving forward. We're locked into this core of Carl Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert, Anthony Edwards. You have D'Angelo Russell. You have Jade McDaniels. It's, it is an incredible gamble on a position that seems to carry less value by the day in the NBA, center position. Recorded a show about just the way that that position has changed even within the last couple of years, much less from 25 years ago when center was the key position and everybody wanted their David Robinson or Hakeem Olajuwon or Patrick Ewing. And now it's just every team, once they get into the playoffs, they're going, well, yeah, I don't want any centers on the floor. I want to go small. I want Grant Williams playing center. I want Draymond Green playing center. I want just these people who have enough size, but more importantly, mobility and flexibility and versatility. And then we could go from there. So the question that I can't get out of my head as I parse through my thoughts on it and I look at the Minnesota side, I'm going, how does this combination work in a playoff series? I, I just, it's hard to watch basketball over the last few years and see that it's probably heading in this direction even more aggressively and say, how does a team that has sunk this many resources into the center position stay afloat in a playoff series when everything's about small ball switchability. And now you have two people who are going to be not that versatile and not that mobile on one side of the ball, Gobert on the offensive side, cat on the defensive side of the ball. And you're trying to beat the very best teams in that, scenario. It's an incredible gamble. It's the antithesis of present day basketball when you look at it that way. It's also them saying, nope, this is by our choice. This is a clear point of before and after. Two years ago, this team is a laughing stock. They haven't done anything since the mid 2000s when Kevin Garnett's there. And then they get some young pieces and suddenly this last season, they're an intriguing team. And then suddenly we're realizing, oh, this is going to be a playoff team. They're an intriguing first round playoff team. They should have beaten Memphis. They were just dumb as hell and couldn't. But from a skill perspective, from a game flow perspective, they should have won that series. So hopefully it's a learning experience. Okay, we got some more uh, playoff reps for Anthony Towns, for especially Anthony Edwards, who I think is going to be the crown jewel of that team moving forward. And now they're going, it's time to cash in all these chips on a dicey gamble. It's literally every trade asset they possess, except for Russell and McDaniels. But I guess McDaniels will carry some weight on the open market if they want to jettison him, but I would keep him. Russell, I don't think, carries that much weight. It's pretty much everything that they own saying, this is who we want to be moving forward. So a lot of questions for these two teams. You know, what the after is, as we separate this between the before and the after, I mean, it remains to be seen. We're going to look back on this point, and <laughs> if I were guessing, I would say this is, could be a really uh, positive turning point for Utah's franchise. That's a lot of stuff. I were putting odds on Minnesota, I go, you probably will regret this, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they look back on it and go, everybody doubted us and thought that we didn't know what we were doing and basketball is played this specific way. And we said, nope, we can actually do it in this way. And we're going to stress teams in ways they're not used to by playing Gobert and Anthony Towns together. We'll find out in the next handful of years. The other 
the other news story from this week and one that will just, it will keep, it's an open-ended news story that will continue for years and years and years and years because that's the way that conference realignment works. It's always the end of the world as we know it. It's the sky is falling. It's just, oh, nothing's ever going to be the same. And, and it actually is true. This is also a sport that is based upon that kind of uh, transformational process. Because every couple of years, it seems, it doesn't seem, it actually does go through a huge metamorphosis. That's just what college football is. Dating back to when I followed the sport, you know, my earliest days. Get into it in 1993, I'm way into it. Oh, this is an incredible sport. And two years later, they create the Bowl Alliance, which if you were not a part of that time frame, everybody just had their conference tie-ins into bowl games. You were never guaranteed a matchup of one versus two. It was just... Pac-10, Big 10, you're playing in the Rose Bowl. Big 12, you go over here. SEC, you go to the Sugar Bowl. Okay, we'll worry about this stuff. And the Bowl Alliance is the very first time that college football went out of the way and said, you know what? We're going to try to get number one versus number two in a game at the end of the year to help out with this national title race. Seems so insane that that took until the 1995 season to occur, but that's true. So that year, Nebraska plays Florida in the Fiesta Bowl true heavyweight matchup. Nebraska, that's widely considered to be one of the best teams in the history of college football. Florida was considered just to be this behemoth in their own right. Fun and gun, Steve Spurrier offense, Danny Warfel, they were just blasting teams in the SEC, both undefeated. They go, they play in Tempe, Arizona at the Fiesta Bowl. And going into that game, it was just like, this is so cool. This is incredible. We're getting one versus two. That's very rare that this happens in this sport. Then a couple years later, the BCS comes along, BCS computers, people love it at first and they hate it. And a decade after, decade plus after that, we're getting into the playoff. People love it at first. Now they hate it. Now we're getting into the expanded playoff with a big open-ended question mark on the end of it. I'm sure as soon as we get that, people will love it at first and they will hate it. Now we're going through all these other just things that are really, truly transforming the sport. Name, image, likeness. Boring as hell, but it, it obviously is, it has a great bearing on present-day college football. Transfer portal. I mean, just the last two years. It's strange tracking the sport through this process of what amounts to NFL free agency, which in the past we never would do because you always had to sit out a year for transferring. And so it just discouraged players from doing that unless they were in a huge bind. And now just every year it's like, okay, you have your recruiting cycles. There's two different signing days. That's a whole new aspect of college football that's occurred in the last decade. Transfer portal is a whole new addition. It's its third thing that's greatly changing rosters every single year. You know, Nebraska every year, my favorite team, they 10 people left here, 15 people are in here. What does this mean? Our new quarterbacks, the starting quarterback of Texas last year. Okay, well, that's weird. Okay, this guy's from Montana. Okay, this guy's from Texas Tech. Okay, let's just fill all these gaps. And throughout the course of all of this, you know, each of these things is drastically changing the sport. Throughout all of this, realignment is constantly happening. Happened since I've been a college football fan and well before that. So last year is the first huge seismic wave of this cycle, which I think promises to be the most transformational yet, because I think there's just, it's, it's kind of a one-way street. I think there's not a lot of options. Once Texas and Oklahoma said, we are going to the SEC, and we said, there are a lot of ripple effects that aren't going to be realized for years, but I think we have a reasonable understanding that this will end with consolidation of the biggest power brokers in the sport. This is a thing that is fueled by money. You know, the big dollar signs flashing. And it's just another thing 
you know, <laughs> that, that I think about. It ties into what I was talking about with Live Golf maybe a week or two ago. And the question that I had that, that's really applicable to just so many things. And I always think, you know, years after the dust settles and you have one of these points in your life of this is a huge decision and it's going to very clearly affect my life and it's going to be a before and after separator. Years after the dust settles, when you chase the money, has anyone ever truly been content with that decision? That's the question that I posed then. Hearing from people who've been in that situation, they've never ever said that that was probably the best decision for me. And this new uh, realignment, it's just, it's all about that. It's television money. It's the richest schools trying to get richer. So Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC and the Big Ten, just kind of the, the foil to the SEC, the other conference that matters, that we know matters, that moving forward, it's probably just going to be these two. USC and UCLA approach them and say, we need in because we kind of understand where this sport is headed. And the Big Ten says, great. We just got LA television market. We just got two of the most iconic brands in college sports. We just opened up an entire Western geographical footprint. Hell yeah. So now everybody starts talking about this. I'm reading a million different things. And I actually want, I pulled aside a bunch of different paragraphs from various people just to kind of get the heartbeat of what is occurring here. And so I'm going to read three separate things right now. The first comes from Stu Mandel of The Athletic. If it wasn't apparent already, the Power Five is rapidly splintering into the Power Two. The Big Ten and SEC were already on course to separate from the ACC, Big 12, and Pac-12 financially. But now they're pilfering those conferences of their most valuable assets. The bus is leaving the station, and if you're not one of the 32 schools holding a ticket, you better run to the counter as fast as possible. College football's consolidation of power is upon us, and the ripple effects will be massive. End quote. So the next thing. This comes from Pete Thamel of ESPN. The consequence of Thursday's move will be that it accentuated a distinct power shift that has occurred in college sport. Two leagues that had already separated themselves competitively, now financially gobbling up four of the most valuable properties in less than a year. And by doing so, riddled the rest of the collegiate landscape with uncertainty, anxiety, and aspirational wanderlust. End quote. Then here's the last thing. Comes from Chris Benini of The Athletic. We need to stop calling it conference realignment or expansion. The more accurate word would be consolidation, at least for the people who actually control what we currently know as college sports. It's coming, maybe in a few years, maybe in a decade or two, but there's no stopping it now. With USC and UCLA moving to the Big Ten, one year after Texas and Oklahoma accepted invitations to the SEC, the college Super League is on its way. College football as we knew it is on its last legs. It will eventually be replaced by an NFL junior type sport, and the TV executives who have long dreamed about this will finally get their wish for a simpler product to package. The people at the right schools will make a lot of money, and the fans at the wrong schools will be left behind. End quote. So there's a million, I mean, a million questions that just, just this news flashing across the ESPN ticker, my mind started going, and again, it's into wormhole central. Just, well, okay, well, that makes me think about this. Well, what about this? Wait, what about, well, okay, well, if that happens, what about this? You know? And as I'm trying to move through them, I just, okay, let's think at the top. Power five turning into power two. Yes, we've sensed that coming. The question is always just, well, there's still three other leagues that are supposed power five leagues. And I'm going, well, what happens to the big 12? Which seemed like they were on solid footing after Texas and Oklahoma were leaving. We're getting these other teams in. Okay, BYU come in. Okay, Cincinnati come in. Okay, a couple other AAC teams come in. Now you're going, well, what, 
What is that relative to what the SEC and the Big Ten are going to have? Pac-12, Pac-10, whatever it's going to be, Pac-8, who knows? What's that conference moving forward? Oregon and Washington, I think they want in on the Big Ten. The Big Ten saying, uh, we're okay right now. I'm sure they are sniffing around Notre Dame and waiting on them hand and foot. That's the one team that I think the Big Ten would break themselves in order to get. But you still have some teams that are very respectable collegiate football teams, collegiate sports programs that are now just sitting there going, okay, for Cal, Stanford, Oregon, Washington, the Arizona schools, what are, what are we? What happens to the ACC? They're tied into this television contract through 2036. That's just the great albatross around the neck of teams who want to leave, which if I look at that conference, I'm going Clemson and Florida State have to be sitting there going, we want into the SEC so bad. How can we make that happen? What happens to all the non-Power 5 teams? Who the hell knows? We have college football super conferences. I feel like it's going to be going back to the structure when we had Division One football, Division Two football, Division Three football, Division One AA football. I don't know what that looks like. Now, what's weird about this money stuff, and I think fans are getting to the point where we can just see through it. I say that because I've gone through this as a fan, as a fan of Nebraska football. And strangely enough, when they were making the move to the Big Ten, I was into it because I thought it would present a competitive advantage to Nebraska as a team. And I said, okay, the Big Ten makes a lot more money than the Big 12. So our revenue share is going to be immense compared to what it was in the Big 12. And I assumed that more money means more money is getting pumped back into the program, which in turn would mean a better football product. That's what I thought going into that. So Nebraska, it's over a decade now that they've been in the Big 10. And before that, it was a decade of just not very good football. And I'm like, okay, this could be transformational for us. You know, we could soup up all of our facilities, soup up our staff, our recruiting capabilities. In turn, football is going to be better. And that just hasn't been the case because what I didn't really understand at the time and now I, I very clearly understand is that that money doesn't really matter when everybody else has it. You know, now we make as much money as Ohio State. Great. Ohio State is in a much better geographical footprint for recruiting and has just so many more things at its disposal than Nebraska. They're just going to be better continually. And I'm looking around, I go, oh, Michigan has as much money and Penn State and Wisconsin and, I, and all these teams that are just better every year at football than Nebraska. So now I don't really care about that. And okay, on one hand, I go USC and UCLA in the Big Ten. Oh yeah, like I don't, it doesn't really make me happy or sad. It's just like, okay, that's different. Makes more money. I don't, that doesn't mean anything to me. You know, why do fans at schools that are in the SEC or the Big Ten care that their schools are making more money? You care if your team's winning. That's literally all I care about with Nebraska, you know? I don't care if the chancellor makes more money. I don't care if coaches get paid more money. None of that things, none of that matters to me. Sure, almost every fan is in that boat where they go, just, I want to see this translate into a product that is capable of winning more than it currently is. So that's just the individual school aspect. You expand the umbrella out and you go, but the whole sport, what does this mean for the sport? And I can only really speak for myself because I've spoken a lot about what I liked about college football, what I like less in present day. I've spoken about just college football that I want is like early 90s college football, strangely enough, where it was just anarchy and nothing really made sense. And there was really no clear way to discern anything. And that's actually what I like. That's what I would prefer in present day. But that's also not realistic. That's not going to happen. So I'm not sitting here ranting and railing saying I'm out on the sport because 
what I liked was my childhood style of college football. Now it's just unrecognizable relative to that. I'm a person who goes, you know what? Football is my favorite sport. It's the best gambling sport. If there's high quality football being played, I promise you, I will be watching. I'll be gambling on it. And it's just got to the point with the structure of the sport. I go, there's really no point in complaining for me. I go, okay, this is what it is. USC and UCLA, they're going, it's going to be more super conference stuff. Yeah. Figure that was happening. And, and honestly, as I think about it and as the sport becomes more splintered and especially as these factions kind of develop within, it's the big 10, it's the SEC, it's everybody else. I go, I just want to see what the end game is. You know, let's just, whatever it is, just let's move it. Let's go. It's going to be an AFC, NFC style arrangement, you know, NFL juniors. Okay, great. Let's see what that is, you know? And if that's what occurs, how enjoyable will it be relative to all the various iterations of college football? Remains to be seen. I'm sure most people that grew up in the sport will be on my boat. We all kind of have preferences of distinct eras of college football that that's the one that I wish was still around. And people who are newer to the sport, they might just go, oh, I'm really into this because I like high quality football. And I just like that every Saturday I get to watch these high powered best teams play against one another. And USC's playing Ohio State and UCLA's playing against Penn State and Nebraska's playing against Wisconsin. That's cool. You know, Texas is playing against Florida and Oklahoma's playing against Alabama. That's cool. Even hearing me say those matchups, I kind of get excited. I go, yeah, I want to see them play football. At the same time, it's just, it's going to be very different. <laughs> it just is. It always is. There's always the before, there's always the after. There's always these points that are continually happening. Just college football moves at warp speed, just like everything else. So the only thing that we can know for certain in 2024, when these moves are most likely going to occur, maybe a little bit before, but I, I would bet on 2024, Texas and Oklahoma, the SEC, USC, UCLA to the Big Ten. The only thing that we know for certain is just that's a clear separation point in the story of college football. It just is. You know, it's the time before super conferences came into existence. It's the time after. What that looks like moving forward, what, what the ripple effects are, remains to be seen. So I'm going to close today by reading a couple paragraphs that uh, I, I think really summarize most college football fans' feelings on this. Just this continual shift that keeps happening, keeps happening, keeps happening, and maybe just happens for all of time. But as people who grew up in the sport, you're always in the back of your mind going, eh, it's not as good as something that I used to love. So I'm going to read this. It's from Chris Vanini. I read some stuff from earlier, and he works for The Athletic, and here it is. I grew up in Big Ten country. I rooted for Michigan as a kid and then attended Michigan State. As far as I can tell from my Big Ten circles and what I've seen elsewhere, after the initial shock, the general reaction among those fans to the USC-UCLA news was mostly apathy. Sure, some are excited. Some hate it too. Most felt powerless to do anything about it. A grim acceptance that the sport they grew up with is changing no matter how they feel. And these are fans of the winners in this game of musical chairs. This sport had always been unique. It's why we fell in love with it. The huge pool of teams to follow, the regional flair, the small towns, the states that don't have professional sports teams, the intensity of the rivalries, the generational upsets, the connections to a school as alumni, the messiness and nonsense was the charm of it. The biggest stadiums in this country host college games, not professional. Few NFL fans care about the league's history before the Super Bowl. College football fans can tell you a story about a game from 1917. It's clear now that a lot of the charm that drew us to college football is on its way out. All in the name of finding every last dollar. So pour one out for the 2007 season. 
for Boise State, Oklahoma, for split national titles, for Appalachian State, Michigan, for the Rose Bowl. I will still be watching. So will millions of others. The sport isn't going to die. It just won't be what so many of us fell in love with in the first place, and a lot of fans will be left behind. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawls Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. I want guests to come on the show and talk about their emotional connection to sports. I obviously have a very deep emotional connection with a wide variety of things in this realm. I talk about it two times a week on this show. And I think it'd be really cool if I got other people to talk about that. Some people have already reached out. I'm in the process of setting up those interviews and getting them out on this channel. Uh, I would like as many people as are willing to do that. So if you are one of those people, or if you know somebody, reach out to me. You can email me at chris at ceo.com, or you can DM me on Twitter at Chris Rawl, uh, and we can go from there. Thanks for listening, and I will be back on Friday. Right.